Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Welcome back to the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. I'm Jeff Finnup with Badgerland Legends, and with me, as always, is... Mike Huberty from American Ghost Walks. Today, Mike, we're going to Rhinelander. Mm, all the way up north. Up in the north woods. Any idea what we might be talking about? Well, considering that this is a podcast about legends of Wisconsin, and we are talking about Rhinelander legends, we talk about things like ghosts and mysteries, and of course cryptids, Rhinelander has the most, maybe behind the Beaster Bay Road, but the second most famous, at least, cryptid in Wisconsin. So I bet we're talking about the Hodag today. We are talking about the Hodag. So right. what is a Hodag? Good question. According to the book Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods by William T. Cox, 1910, the Hodag has been variously described by woodsmen from Wisconsin and Minnesota. Opinions differ greatly as to the appearance of the beast some claiming it to be covered with horns and spines and having a maniacal disposition. Hmm, just like me. The size, about that of a rhinoceros, somewhat resembling that animal in general makeup. The creature is slow in motion, deliberate, and unlike the rhinoceros, very intelligent. Its hairless body is mottled, striped, and checked in a striking manner. On the hodag's nose, instead of a horn, there is a large spade-shaped bony growth with peculiar phalanges extending up in front of the eye so that it can only see straight up. This probably accounts for the deliberate disposition of the animal, which wanders through the spruce woods looking for suitable food. This description in that passage varies wildly from the beast that we know from Rhinelander today, which means it has evolved over the years. Right, but when I think about that one, though, when I envision the hodag, I always picture, you know, like the people with when they do the modern primitive thing and they get like the nose piercing and they get the big bone through the nose. Yeah. Kind of, you know, that you see those. They, guys they look concerts. like Hodag is what you're trying to say. Right. All of, our, gonna... all of our friends with septum piercings listening, you look like Hodag. <laughs> I'm not going to say it to their face, but I'll say it on the podcast. So what exactly is a Hodag? Well, let's start first with what it's not. Now, you mentioned at the top of the show that it was Wisconsin's maybe famous, most famous cryptid. Well, the Hodag is not a cryptid. What? Jeff, you're blowing my mind. It is actually a fearsome critter. Now, it lives in the same fictional universe as Paul Bunyan, Babe the Big Blue Ox, the Jackalope, the Squonk, and the Snallygaster. Wait, hold on. What you, What universe does the Snallygaster live in? In this fictional universe of... Paul Bunyan and lumberjacking lore. Okay, sounds good. Well, we have a, the Snallygaster. We get a different episode. Snallygaster. That's a. I think that's more of a Maryland cryptid. Okay. Or, I'm sorry. Fearsome critter. The hodag likely originated in the bunkhouses of lumber camps in the Northwoods of Wisconsin and Minnesota, maybe stretching into Maine. It was likely a tall tale created by veteran lumberjacks and camp foremen to pass time, as well as fill the vital role of a cautionary tale. The lumberjack profession for obvious reasons, was a perilous endeavor. Other than the standard occupational hazards like tree falls, widowmakers, log jams, and work around heavy animals, there may have been other unseen hazards like attacks from bears and the advantageous cougar. 
being on the lookout for one of these mythical beasts like the Hodag, it may have provided a heightened sense of danger to those walking alone through the big woods. So Mike, you may have a little article about the origin of the Hodag name. Right. The idea of the word Hodag, where it might come from. This is from Beachcomber's Bizarre History Blog. And this is written by the guy that runs the blog, Beachcomber, as his username. And he's researching into the history of the Hodag. He finds the history and directory of Kent County, Michigan from 1870. And that's the first place we find the word Hodag. There is a portable detached steam sawmill on the west side of Section 11 on the Little Cedar erected in June 1869 by McClure and Kidder. This mill cuts 10,000 feet of lumber or 15,000 shingles per day. It will be better known as the Hodag Mill. This name was given it from the fact that an unknown and mysterious animal was heard, seen, and even fired at in the woods near here some years ago. And as no other name could be found for it, it was called Hodag. And when the mill was built, this was the name given to it by the people of Birchville. And he goes on to say, This sounds a bit like the way Boggart was given to haunted buildings and spots in northern England. This researcher, Beachcomber, also found a Hodag Creek in Montana. And so this idea of people already in 1870 using the word Hodag to represent some kind of unknown, mysterious kind of animal, and that he compares it to Boggart, which is like a little goblin or demon mm-hmm. in, in English mythology, and then they just referred to that spot, so that's a Boggart spot, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, the Hodag spot or the Hodag lair. And now we have a Hodag spot in 1870. And so it's just, when you were saying that lumberjacks might be using it for some term of, hey, be careful out there, you never know the Hodag's going to get you, for safety and for watching out for animals, mm-hmm. we already see an example of this kind of thing 25 years before it shows up in Wisconsin. Where does the Hodag come from? Well, according to the lore, the Hodag was said to be born from the ashes of cremated oxen, a reincarnation of the accumulation of the abuse these animals suffered at the hands of their sadistic drivers. The reincarnated ox was a bit of lore injected by author Luke Lakeshore Kearney in his book, The Hodag, which was published in 1929. Now, Kearney, he was believed to be one of the originators of the Hodag hoax, along with Eugene Shepard back in the late 1800s. Now, from the book Hodag, the customary burial ceremony for the ox was cremation. So a huge pile of brush was usually gathered and the remains of the ox placed carefully in the center. The belief of those sturdy woodsmen was that seven years of continuous fire was necessary to exterminate the profanity which had accumulated in the body of the ox during its life. So literally, bullshit. <laughs> a, a little bit of bullshit and a lot of uh, cussing. <laughs> It was at the end of the seventh year of the cremation of an ox, which had led an unusually hard life, that an event was to happen, which would cast its shadow upon every man who witnessed it. As the fire died down, there slowly issued from that great pile of ashes a mystical animal, later to be known as the Hodag. Oh, it's almost like the phoenix. It's kind of a phoenix rising from the ashes. Except the phoenix is like a beautiful creature feeling of rebirth the hodag is is a vengeful bastard right (laughs) with a penchant for white bulldogs hungry for the bulldog yeah although a fun piece of lore as an origin story for the creation of the beast these stories may have served the lumber company's interest because the improper treatment of these animals could result in loss of production due to an exhausted or injured animal these animals were a primary piece of hauling equipment long before the use of tractors trucks 
and other forms of mechanized equipment. So the ox was the workhorse, for lack of a better term. They probably had Belgian horses and quarter horses, right. but the rugged ox was probably your best bang for the buck. Right, for getting an know, animal. thousands of logs or whatever from the camp to exactly. the river. Exactly. If you look through some of those old lumbering pictures, you will see these snow sleds piled high with fresh timber. And you're like, how could anybody ever move it? A team of ox and some well, like you determined saying, lumberjacks. Paul Bunyan, Babe the Blue Ox. And now you've explained for me why Babe was even around. So I was like, Paul Bunyan's not a farmer. Why does he have an ox around there? His Maybe ox- he just like steak? Or I didn't know what he liked. The beast of burden turns into a hodag if you piss it off and burn it. Kearney may be where we draw the current resemblance of the hodag from. He wrote in that book, The Hodag, the animal's back resembled that of a dinosaur, and his tail, which extended to an enormous length, had spear-like ends. Sharp spines, one and a half feet apart, they lined the spinal column. The legs were short and massive, and the claws were thick and curved, denoting great strength. The broad, furrowed forehead was covered with coarse, shaggy hair and bore two large horns. From the broad, muscular mouth, sharp, glistening, white teeth protruded. Kind of looks like a dinosaur, kind of looks like an ox. Right, because it's got the, like the front of like the ox with the horns and stuff, and obviously the septum piercing. And then it's got the back of a stegosaurus yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, and there's also other descriptions that talk about uh, like an elephant-like body and then a head of a frog or a grinning frog. You know, each telling of the tale, it gets more and more absurd, but we finally settled on the Rhinelander hodag right. that we see today on display at the huge statue. Yet another description from the time came from a newspaper. The news article predated Kearney's by about 40 years. In 1893, newspapers reported the discovery of a hodag near Rhinelander. Timber cruiser Eugene Simeon Shepard was hiking near his home in Rhinelander. Shepard was well aware of the legend of the hodag, but he had yet to spot one. Shepard stood face to face with a snarling beast. It was seven feet long and weighed about 185 pounds. Its head was larger than its body, and it had two horns growing out of its head. Short black hair covered its muscular and stout frame. The beast emitted a terrible odor, and flame and smoke rolled from its nostrils. Shepard would describe the odor as a combination of buzzard meat and skunk perfume. Wow. Shepard Solo, of course, retreated back to Rhinelander, which at the time was a bustling lumber camp. According to that newspaper report in the publication, The New North, an article written by the snake editor, we might be able to guess who was the snake editor by the end of this. <laughs> right. A, a group of hunters aspired to capture one. The best hunters of Poverty Hill in Logtown districts, well armed with heavy rifles and large bore squirt guns loaded with poisonous water. They came upon their game in a tamarack swamp. Their guns commenced a regular fusillade until their guns got too hot to longer hold in their hands, and then they drew their knives and sailed in, followed by a great crowd who were all well armed. Then men stacked piles of birch bark around the beast and threw a few sticks of dynamite. The beast thrashed and began slashing timbers, the trees falling in every direction. As the explosions, fire, and falling timbers settled, the first black hodag was consumed. The remains were transported to Rhinelander and displayed, the hunters unable to capture the beast alive. Right, they had to use dynamite on them. 
Now, that was an actual news article that ran next to regular news articles and legal notices. We already know the snake editor dropped this little nugget in there for to either entertain readers or to trick them. We're not sure which. The fact that the Rhinelander newspaper or whatever at the time had a, had a snake editor. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like we have a copy editor. We got the guy that covers the sports section. And then, you know, we got the, the gossip pages. And don't forget, snakes get their own section in the Rhinelander The snake newspaper. editor front page, too. So the story gained so much attention in the North Woods in central Wisconsin, it was even featured in an ad campaign by the Centralia Lumber Company, Centralia, Wisconsin. Mm. Mike, have you ever heard of Centralia? Uh, I have not been there myself. Uh, you might have. It is actually Wisconsin Rapids. The town oh. I grew up in was once called Centralia. I did, I did Centralia not know that. Centralia in Grand Rapids, and then it merged to Wisconsin Rapids. I have been. Then I, that, you bet I've been to Centralia then. There was once a coffee shop called Centralia. I'm not sure if it's there anymore, but that was where I first learned of the um, origins of my city's name. And that also that they were running ads for the Hodak. Yeah, it's really cool to go into newspaper archives and find the old ads for Centralia. It has a cartoon, and it might be from Eugene Shepard, who drew it. But the ad featured a cartoon sketch of the spotted Hodag, the bovine spiritualis, pretty much saying the cow spirit, and spoke about his prowess and attributes. The ad was tagged, If you desire the complete history of this denizen of the pine forest of Wisconsin, call on Centralia Lumber Company. So I'm not sure if you went there and they gave you a flyer on it, if they regaled you with some lumberjacking tailors. They've got Uh, a hodag brochure. What I think is interesting here, though, is that in the the creation of this creature, you know, I guess when I refer to it as a cryptid versus a a fearsome critter, mm -hmm. I did not realize that the hodag was a supernatural creature in its origin. Because if it's created out of the ashes of burning oxen mm-hmm. or whatever, it's born out of those things, then created through a fire ritual. Yeah. Yeah, I never really thought about that. For those wondering, you know, why is it not a cryptid? Well, a cryptid is a undiscovered animal, animal that people believe exists, but it hasn't been documented by science. So right. that's what where cryptid would come in, where this is more of a, a legendary creature or a mythical creature or I believe in it. a fireborn hodag. Well, a lot of people still believe in the hodag. Three years after the original capture of the hodag article ran, Shepard shocked the world. In 1896, Shepard and a group of lumberjacks surprised a hodag in its den and asphyxiated the monster with a heavy dose of chloroform. The thing is, if you're going to chloroform a hodag, you get a like chloroform blanket. What I've heard was they used a pipe and they vaporized the chloroform and blew it into the den to put it to sleep. And then they dragged it back to Oh, like some kind of like sleeping gas or something. Yeah, exactly. Okay, wow. Before we go any further in the legend of the hodag, let's talk about Gene Shepard. He was kind of the godfather or the progenitor of the Hodag mythos. Eugene Simeon Shepard was born in 1854 in Fort Howard. Do you know where that is, Mike? No, never that, heard of that either. That was Green Bay before it was Green Bay. Ah, okay. That, it was and Fort old, Howard before the Howard. military ridge started? Exactly. Old Fort Howard. So his family ended up moving to New London, where his father operated farm. He earned a sixth grade education from New London schools. Unfortunately, his father passed when he was only 12, and Gene had to work as a farmhand and a tugboat pilot on the Wolf River. 
Now at 16, Gene found his true calling as a timber cruiser or a landlooker when he was hired to be an assistant of Albert A. Weber in 1870. Now this job took him all through the north woods of Wisconsin, assessing standing timber and estimating its yield and value. So there was a lot of land prospectors from out east. They needed local help to sure. find the timber that was ripe for the picking and being able to buy it at a cheap rate and knowing that the yield would be worth their purchase. So they hired this Weber guy and Gene Shepard to go out and scout this timber and say, hey, this is the best parcel of land that you can buy. And then they took a cut, of course. Sure, so he was like a, like a tree expert. He was a tree expert, he was a forest expert, and he knew the North Woods like the back of his hand. It was on one of these timber cruising trips where Weber and Shepard camped at the confluence of the Pelican and Wisconsin rivers. The place at the time was called Pelican Rapids and later became the city of Rhinelander. Now the city was founded officially in 1882 and Shepard was on hand to witness his first year of growth. Although timber cruising did take a lot of time away from Rhinelander, he became a permanent resident in 1886, about four years after its founding. He was up and down the North Woods and you know, Rhinelander was kind of a place that he wanted to settle and sure. grow. And maybe become a snake editor. Snake editor of the New North. During the time leading up to his residence in Rhinelander, he took a wife, Mildred Molly Woodworth of New London. That is now, a very 19th century name. Mildred. Mildred Molly Woodworth. So that was in 1876. So the following year, the couple had their first son, Claude. Claude's only sibling would come 15 years later, a boy named Layton. Apparently, Gene was too busy timber cruising to produce a lot of kids accustomed to families of the time. Right. But at least he had a 15-year-old, so then you got a babysitter right away. So Gene's thinking. At this point, America was expanding. A flood of European immigrants were hitting the shores of the U.S. and moving westward to stake their claims. Now, the 1868 Homestead Act provided that any adult citizen or intended citizen who had never borne arms against the U.S. government so Confederates excluded, could claim 160 acres of surveyed government land. It was like a land rush in Wisconsin. 160 acres. 160. All you had to do was not be part of the Confederacy. And you didn't even have to be a citizen, just an intended citizen. You sell the land, you worked towards citizenship, you got 160 acres on the new frontier. Right, and you think about all those people who had come over from Ellis Island at the time, Mm-hmm. Um, that was the like the first the Western Europeans, the German immigrants, and the you know, everything mm-hmm. like that. That's a bonanza. Imagine that yeah. you grew up poor in some like city, like Hamburg or something, and mm-hmm. you're like, okay, we're gonna take a shot in America. You come over, and they're like, here's 160 acres of land. It's an embarrassment of riches. It really is, and that's how my family made their way from Germany and Prussia and made it to Central Wisconsin was through programs like this, where they could. Uh, transform the land and turn it into productive land. My grandfather's grandfather came over and he did just that. He ended up cutting all of the oaks on the property, selling them to a stave mill, and then farmed the land. If you go to Rudolph, town of Siegel, there is still a road with our surname on it. You can go to Finnup Lane next Very time nice. you're at Rudolph Cheese Factory. That's pretty nice. Huberty is still a little bit too embarrassing to be a road name, so yeah. I'm hoping that one of these days I'll change that. Huberty Lane? Yeah, I'll, I'll change that reputation. So because of this land rush, timber demand was soaring and the rich pine forests of Wisconsin were ripe for the harvesting. The prairie lands west of Wisconsin being settled raised the demand for the natural resource. Now the town of Stevens Point, Mosinee, Wausau, Merrill, and Rhinelander 
were all founded and developed by the lumbering industry. In 1890, according to the Wisconsin Historical Society, 23,000 men worked in more than 450 logging camps. Seeing that the population of the state was only about 1.6 million, that means that lumberjacks were about 2%. So two out of every 100 people, uh, every adult men, were lumberjacks at that time in Wisconsin. Now they just dress like lumberjacks. Now they're just, yeah, hipsters. Well, in 1887, Oneida County would officially be chartered as a county, taking with it land from Lincoln County. Now, Rhinelander would be the county seat. The new county board would be appointed, and they would appoint Shepard, the knowledgeable woodsman, along with his map-making abilities, the county's surveyor. Shepard got the job. He mapped a lot of Oneida County. He named most of the lakes, including there is a lake in Rhinelander called Shepherd Lake. A little favoritism, I imagine. Right. Now, he continued the land prospecting business that he started after he left Weber, and it was called the Northwestern Land Agency. Shepard continued his government role until 1891, when he relinquished his duties and turned back to his land prospecting and surveying agency full-time. At this point, Shepard was heavily invested monetarily through the land acquisitions, as well as psychologically in the success of Rhinelander. Sure. Shepard got involved in boosterism. This was an enthusiastic practice by a person or organization to attract people or money to a specific town, region, or area. The practice does several things. It's an attempt to enhance public perception and attracts people to the area for development of tourism. It was like an early form of visitors bureaus or chambers of commerce. Right, so he's the head of the Rhinelander the Chamber of Commerce. He's yeah. the uh, the carnival barker for Rhinelander. Right. Trying to bring in, bring in industries. He's trying to bring in business. And then he's trying to bring in tourists. And he's trying to bring in permanent residents. Because that's really how you get things done, is by getting the people there to work the industries. You got to get a railroad. You got to get lumber mills. Shepard, in his travels, was an avid booster of his new little boomtown, Rhinelander. Now, Shepard also had a long-term outlook for his new town. He understood that lumbering industry and the implications of a cutover and what that would have on the economy. He'd already seen the boomtown to ghost town cycle after all the resources were harvested. In order to protect his investments in Rhinelander, he looked to attract businesses and entrepreneurs to the area to further develop both population and infrastructure. His main aim was to bring railroads to expand the population of Rhinelander and set up industry and infrastructure for citizens, bringing both prosperity to the economy and attracting tourist dollars. So this civic duty may have been where the hodag came in. What better way to bring attention to your community than the emergence of a mythical beast the world has never seen before? I think every town should do that. It's really worked for Rhinelander. It's worked for Point Pleasant. Right. I think everybody needs their own mascot, whatever it is. The galloping ghosts of Kakana, they could get on that. Right. The, the Ridgeway Phantoms. Yeah. Hire uh, the Huberty Finnup Consulting Group and we'll... Uh... <laughs> we will bring tourism to your town. Yeah, exactly. So Shepard was well known as a rock tour. He often visited lumber camps during his travels and told tall tales. These tales would seemingly grow exponentially during each retelling at successive camps. Now, Gene Shepard, the P.T. Barnum of the bunkhouse, may be the reason we know of Paul Bunyan today. Although it's unclear the exact origins or who first told the world's largest woodsman tale, the Bunyan tales were definitely within his repertoire. Mm. Shepard was also known for a series of pranks at one of his resort properties on Ballard Lake. He was known to douse a patch of moss with cheap perfume and charge visitors a quarter to smell the exotic scented moss. (laughs) 
only could be found on Ballard Lake, only on the Shepherd property. He also promoted the area and Ballard Lake as the greatest muscalunge fishing in the world. Now, when that fish of 10,000 cast was not biting, Shepard treated downtrodden fishermen to another display. Through a series of wires, he managed to make a musky leap from the lake as a reminder of the one that got away. The simple sleight of hand intrigued fishermen to book yet another week at his resort. About a week before the inaugural Oneida County Fair, our article ran in the New North Rhinelander's local newspaper. They announced Black Hodag for the fair. The beast was captured by Shepard and crew. After its capture, Shepard transported that hodag to the fairgrounds and confined it to a pit resembling its den. There it stayed in the days leading up to the Oneida County Fair. So 1896. He, pre- he preps this with the story that the hunters captured the hodag, they chloroformed, yep. and now they're bringing the dag to the fair. Yep. He seeded the ground, and now he's got to pay it off. Right. Of course, Shepard announced that he would proudly exhibit his captured beast. Those who were brave enough could enter a darkened tent, drop their dime, and encounter the beast. Separated by a tarp, fairgoers witnessed the beast move and growl, a cunning trick played by his sons using their voices and wires to animate the beast. Very few left the fairgrounds not believing in the authenticity of Shepard's Hodag. From this introduction, the Hodag and its boastful owner toured county fairs and even the Wisconsin State Fair in Milwaukee. Shepard also displayed the beast at his home, enticing visitors to lay over and conducted the same charade to unwitting dupes. So he let people know... He's got a real hodag taking around to fairs, and then he keeps it in his home. Yeah, he keeps it in his backyard and then charges people, turns the same trick. His personal zoo. Yep. So legend has it that P.T. Barnum even offered to buy the rights, Shepard putting one over on the man that coined the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. Barnum historians refute that claim, and it's speculated that this was yet another tall tale woven by old Shep. Now, in that same vein, it was said that the Smithsonian sent men to view and validate the existence of the beast. Although this seems plausible, it also falls into the category of legend. There's no documentation from the Smithsonian showing any interest in the beast. And if there was, they probably would have destroyed it. Right. Because it would have been embarrassing. But th- that's the kind of thing that goes on websites that talk about the hodag and everything. They're like, well, you know, even the Smithsonian came down to check it out. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's definitely been weaved into the general lore of the hodag right. is that the Smithsonian came calling. Right, that the hodag was so convincing that Washington, D.C. had to try and get a yeah. piece. By the turn of the century, it was revealed that the hodag, at least Gene Shepard's, was indeed a hoax. Oh. It's not known who revealed the hoax and when, but by 1900, a Chicago Evening Post article claimed that Shepard had since fessed up to the ploy. Despite being revealed as a hoax, it didn't temper the interest in the beast. People still flocked to Rhinelander to view the beast or to learn about the creature of the lumberwoods. Much like Shep spinning yarns in the bunkhouse or around a roaring fire, the stories changing with each telling, so did the legend of the hodag. The size, characteristics, and the method of capture evolved with each telling. Where did Gene Shepard get the inspiration for the mythical beast known as the hodag? Few people know that Gene Shepard was actually fluent in the Ojibwe language. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so he used it to communicate with the local Indians in that area and establish routes and converse with people for intel on the pine forest. So he's familiar with the native culture. And in Ojibwe lore, there was this mythical beast called the Mishapishu, or the underwater panther. 
many native cosmologies of the region, they break things into planes of existence. They have the earth, the sky, and the underwater or underground. Well, Mishapishu, or the underwater panther, lurked in this lowest realm. Pictographs found near Lake Superior show a depiction of Mishapishu that looks surprisingly like a hodag. Right, got the horns and everything. It's got the horns and the spikes. And could this be where Shepard conceived the description of the beast and brought it to life in lumberjacking lore? Well, much like the Piasaw bird in Alton, Illinois, that's right next to the Mississippi there. Mm -hmm. If you see the modern like redoing of the pictograph kind of looks like a hodag with wings oh really kind of thing okay, so i haven't I mean, seen it i'll put that in the show notes right there's a theory that maybe originally it was supposed to be a mishapishu pictograph kind of thing and then later on they added the wings somebody and added wings but anyway the pie saw it's now on the edge and you can go there in alton and see this big giant pictograph on the side of a cliff that's you see it and you're like oh kind of looks like the hodag so i can definitely see how gene shepherd took that he might be like hey this is a a cool creature in indian lore and Mm -hmm. how do i take this a little bit and then use it to my advantage yeah and add it to kind of the mythos of the lumberwoods and lumberjacks were already doing that with the indian character wisakachek yep whiskey jack that was a a tradition. They were the lore that surrounded them, the lore that discovered the people that were living there. They would adapt that to their lumberjack universe. Yeah, what do they say? Good artists borrow, great artists steal. It's no different when it comes to lumberjacks. So although the Hodag may have been native to Rhinelander, his influence have been felt throughout pop culture. Mike, where else in pop culture can we find a Hodag? I gotta say that probably the most famous place people can see the Hodag be in Harry Potter. Never heard of it. Right. <laughs> Who's that guy? In Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the Hodag is named a couple of times. Here's one. In the 1620s, there's a Irish witch, Isolt Sayre, and a, um, a Pukwudgie, William. I don't know what a Pukwudgie is. But they took trips together to observe the Hodag's hunting in nature. During its search for moon calves... I don't know what moon calves are, but I assume it's another fantastic beast. The hodag was attracted to muggle farms at night. That's non-magical people are the mm-hmm. muggles. So the wizards are the wizards and jokers like us are muggles. The hodags would go to the muggle farms, much like the snallygaster. Mm-hmm. Just like they have Hogwarts over in England. In the U.S., they had this magical association of the USA. There's the Department of No Magic Misinformation, and they worked hard to convince the people of America that the sightings of hodags were hoaxes. Oh, so they didn't. So maybe so, Gene Shepard was right. Maybe Gene Shepard worked for this this magical association, in the United States of America, and so there's this Department of Misinformation, so that the Muggles wouldn't know who the wizards were, and then the hodag was confined to a protected area around Wisconsin. And so this is from like the the Harry Potter website and the mm-hmm. Fantastic Beats that J.K. Rowling before the movie came out. They you know, she designed this website about this bestiary of all of the magical creatures inside the Harry Potter universe, and she placed them in Wisconsin. She plays them in Wisconsin. I think this is from a video game associated with Harry Potter, like the Harry Potter video game. During the 1988-89 school year, Rubius Hagrid, remember Hagrid, the big, mm-hmm. huge the big guy? that giant guy. Yeah, Robbie Coltrane played, was gifted a hodag from a friend as it was terrorizing his friend's herd of moon calves. The hodag preferred to bite Hagrid's fingers than eat a special feed Hagrid obtained from Wisconsin. Was it cheese? Right, that's what it should have been. The hodag, J.K. Rowling knows what it is. Yeah. So and it also fun. appeared in Scooby-Doo, right? Yes, in 2012. This is from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Cole Levy wrote this. 
Straight from the north woods of Wisconsin to the television screen, the Hodag, Rhinelander's mystical beast of yore, is making a Scooby-Doo debut next month. An episode of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated will feature the Hodag and its discoverer, August 3rd on Cartoon Network. It's a great avenue of free PR, said Laura Reed, the executive director of the Rhinelander Area Chamber of Commerce. She's the heir of Gene Shepard, probably. Apparently. We're excited about the attention it brings to Rhinelander. Reed hopes the show will inspire viewers to visit the real Hodag, the fanged reptilian creature that Eugene Shepard discovered in 1893. Shepard makes an appearance on the TV show as an entertainer traveling with a curio wagon and a seemingly stuffed Hodag. So why did Scooby-Doo's producers choose to showcase the Wisconsin monster and its chief proponent? Mitch Watson and Tony Cervoni, the writers, wanted a folkloric monster, the Northwoods River News reported. It didn't hurt that legend says the Hodag prefers eating dogs, particularly white bulldogs although the cartoon beast finds Scooby just as appetizing. Watson and Cervoni, who were unavailable for comment, had also considered a storyline involving an ancient wheel of cheese with a clue to a larger mystery. The connection to Wisconsin was obvious, regardless of whether you believe the state is the Hodag's natural habitat. You'll agree it's definitely the land of cheese. Nice. The Hodag, he was actually linked to at least one presidential campaign and may have been a totem for an iconic candidate. Well, that's right, even though it may have ended it in bad luck. So this is from the Rhinelander Daily News, July 16, 1960. Kennedy prizes his hodag gift. A hodag, symbol of Rhinelander, is one of the prized possessions of Senator John F. Kennedy, who this week was nominated by the Democratic Party to be its candidate for President of the United States. The miniature hodag was given to Senator and Mrs. Kennedy when they came here last fall during the course of the campaign for delegates to the National Convention. The presentation was made by Henry J. Berquist, a Democratic county chairman and master of ceremonies for the Labor Temple at which the Massachusetts senator spoke. We find the hodag to be a very provocative conversation piece, Senator Kennedy has written Berquist, and we are delighted to have so interesting a souvenir of our visit to Linelander. Nice. So that was my very poor Massachusetts Kennedy accent. But yes, and he accepted the nomination at the Biltmore Hotel, uh, which we discussed the Biltmore really quick in the episode about Frank Lloyd Wright when we talk about the Black Dahlia. Mm -hmm. And that was the last place she was seen alive. That was also where JFK accepted the Democratic nomination for president in 1960 because of the Hodag. So his entire success we can attribute to. You wonder whatever happened to that Hodag figurine that they sent him. Do you think he just tossed it? No, on the campaign trail, what, or do you think it was actually like archived? Like, is I there, think what probably happened was the CIA had to take it back after they killed him. That's why they assassinated him, to get the Hodag figurine. To get it back. So, so we also think of the Hodag as strictly a lumberjack lore, but you've been able to find a couple articles from Ohio and even America's Southwest that mention the Hodag. Well, that's right. It seems like we talk about that earlier that the Hodag name the word itself, you know, it said, oh, it's a combination. Some people said it's a combination of the word horse and dog, but that doesn't kind of go along with the... The description. The cow. You yeah, know, the oxen. Oxen, the, the bulls. But the idea that the hodag might have been a mysterious creature in general or a word for a mysterious creature in general that the lumberjacks might have used or people who were exploring the territories when we get to the mid-19th century, that maybe it comes from. So Ohio, we've got this place called St. Mary's Lake. And this is from the Lake Improvement Association website for this Grand Lake, St. Mary's Lake near Lima, Ohio. And it's spelled hodag with an E. 
Okay. H-O-E-D-A-G. H-O-E-D-A-G. Grand Lake St. Mary's was once the world's largest artificial body of water, dug by 1,700 German and Irish immigrants from 1837 to 1845. Grand Lake St. Mary's was home to the world's first offshore oil well, hmm. with waterbound derricks positioned on the lake to pump oil from beneath its water. So it's built to connect a couple of rivers in Ohio, and then after you know they're not using steamboats and things anymore, they're going to fill it up. They decide not to fill it up and instead make it kind of a place that people might want to visit. The other thing they had was a lake monster. The Hodag, a monster that reportedly lives in Grand Lake St. Mary's, was first reported in 1912. So that's a Mishapishu. Maybe. What does it look like? The beast was said to be the target of many fruitless hunting expeditions and is three quarters the size of an elephant, going back to your Hodag elephant, mm-hmm. possesses a serpentine body with a back hump, chicken-like feet, a green eye on the forehead, and a red eye and a long tail, and is covered in hair and feathers. Hmm. For okay. a lake monster. Yeah, it's a very interesting monster. Now, what does it eat? The Hodag's diet supposedly consists of the farm dogs that once ventured into her native cattail habitat, frightened humans, they linked her to several human disappearances, and her favorite food, pumpkin pie. Not white bulldogs. Not white bulldogs. She loves a pumpkin pie. What does it sound like? The terrible hodag makes a moaning sound, like a mix between the call of a yahoo bird and the whinny of a horse, and has also been heard cackling and screaming when amused. It is believed that the hodag is lonely and starved for affection. This is from the Lima News, Lima, Ohio, um, October 30th, 1930. Mardi Gras at St. Mary's to be held Friday. A community Halloween celebration will be held in St. Mary's Friday night, October 31st, under the auspices of the local merchants. The main street of town will be roped off for the celebration and masqueraders will stage a big parade. The Hodag is to appear in the parade. The Hunters, Traders, and Trappers organization has promised. The Hodag is a strange creature which was blamed for years by the HTNTs, the Hunters, Traders, and Trappers organization, for the disappearance of pies, cakes, and other delicacies at their clubhouse, Lake St. Mary's. It has eluded them until recently when they succeeded in staging its capture. The animal has feet that are circles resembling plates. He is capable of moving backward or forward at an equal rate of speed, and it's exceptionally hard to trace because of the circular footprints which leave the pursuer in doubt as to which the direction the animal has gone. Other strange characteristics of the hodag is its long neck, bristling with porcupine-like quills, its body, which resembles that of a calf. There's your cow. Its long front legs and short rear legs, its tail, which stands erect and is about three feet long. So, they had their own hodag capture party. Nice. At the Halloween celebration in Lima, Ohio, October 30th. And this is 1930. So this is 30, 33 years or whatever, or longer than that, than it made its debut at the um, Monadic County County Fair. So that's going on in Ohio. And this Grand Lake St. Mary's has its own hodag, which is more like the Mishapishu, the water panther. And then going back in time, 1913, Arizona, the Arizona Republic, Phoenix, Arizona. A hodag hunt is suggested. Information leaked into Phoenix yesterday of the discovery up in Bloody Basin of a curious animal which is said to have the ability to run around the side of a mountain with peculiar ease. The story was brought to town by a prominent apple grower from up the Verde Valley, which proposed the parties be organized immediately to go up and hunt the thing. He said that as far as his information went, the peculiar animal, which seems to be a relative of the New Mexico Side Hill Hodag, has a wolf's head 
a coyote's body, and a fox's tail. And the legs on the left side are shorter than the right side, which assists the critter to run around the side of a hill with the rapidity of a lobo wolf. It was said that there are a number of these things, and that the steeper the mountain, the shorter the legs are on the left side. He said they also always run in one direction so as to give the short legs on the left side the greatest play on the upside of the hill. Okay, Arizona, this is in January of 1913. Now, a New Mexico paper also talks about the hodag. Horrible hodag in New Mexico. The Phoenix Republican is somewhat agitated over the fact that a genuine hodag has been reported in New Mexico of a variety different to the side hill hodag indigenous to the state of Arizona. The Arizona paper also doubts the authenticity of the reported New Mexico find and insists that while the original variety of hodag was first seen in New Mexico, it had extended its environments well into Arizona, and but the one species is known to exist. The Republican says, that's the Phoenix Republic, they call it Republican, under the title of, quote, the hodag or sidewalloper, unquote, an exchange prints a very captivating account of the discovery of one of the strange animals in the salt marshes of New Mexico. So far as discovering a hodag on several bodags in New Mexico is concerned, the exchange is all right, but when it takes the word of a half-witted old trapper for the plans and specifications of the animal, it oversteps the bounds of veracity. The hodag was originally discovered in New Mexico and later found in large numbers in Arizona. It has yet eluded capture until the old trapper in question caught one, but he neglects to produce a hide or teeth to prove his assertions. The old trapper, who claims to be a partner of Kit Carson is experienced in the use of every weapon from the latest automatic rifle to the primitive bow and arrows of the Indians. He says so himself. He's also quite likely to be skilled in the use of the longbow. The description of the hodag is entirely too fanciful to ring true. He has too many frills. It will be remembered that the Arizona species was just awful and nothing more. No one was ever venturesome enough to stop to verify certain suspicions about the hodag's general appearance, so those who have caught glimpses of the animal have contented themselves with either saying it was simply awful or stretching out a flock of imaginary facts supplied by a mind scared blank of any real data. New Mexico's obviously taking Arizona's bait and coming back. So all throughout 1913, you have these articles in the, uh, the Arizona Republic. Republic. And then there's New Mexico newspapers, and they're going back and forth until now we get to September. Wisconsin hodag is exposed as a hoax. The hodag is exposed. That is, one kind has been dug from its cave of obscurity and presented to the astonished public as a hoax, while the real one, the Arizona hodag, remains as much of a mystery as ever. Joseph P. Dillon, who has always been more or less keenly interested in hodags and Arizona camels, Arizona camels. It's the desert. Yeah. Yesterday sent a copy of a popular magazine containing the great hodag expose to the Republican writer who has chronicled the deeds of the animal on the borders of the state. The article has been inspected and so far as it regards the Wisconsin hodag produced authoritative. But the despoiler of many ranches in the Bloody Basin, the beast that was brought to Arizona from New Mexico six years ago, along with two of its mates, has not yet been actually described nor disproven in the public prints. So... They have this, it, it's almost, it's almost like a pissing match. Right. And they're almost doing this hodag just the same way Gene Shepard is to get attention, but they're not treating it like a parody or anything. They're just sticking these stories in the newspaper next to whatever announcement's going on. They, so they have their own snake editor. Yeah. They're playing at, it straight. At these newspapers. And, you know, watching the way they say this and how straightforward it is. It breaks my heart a little bit because it makes me think that some of the reports of sea serpents that we've had and all these different lakes yeah. uh, over time. Charles Z. Brown said, great folklorist, archaeologist, 
historian. He said, a resort town without a sea serpent was behind the times. <laughs> you kind of let the cat out of the bag with that one saying a lot of these resort guys would say, oh, yeah, there's a sea serpent here. So then people would come out, people. rent a boat, picnic on the lake shores, stop at the local restaurant watering hole. 130 years later, right, I'm still, like, looking for the Lake Monona monster. Let's see, he's out there. There's one in each lake in Madison. Right, <laughs> exactly. So when I read these stories, I'm like, oh, yeah. Now I think of, like, well, maybe the newspapers weren't 100% like accurate back then. I don't think they had a lot of fact-checkers. <laughs> Clearly not, especially if uh, somebody by the name of Snake Editor. Right. So now I feel I have to, I have to question every Sea Serpent article I get or whatever, which... Which hurts. And speaking of arcane newspaper articles, I found this one in my research. It was from October 1896. So this would have been a couple months after the United County Fair. Yeah. Revealing the Hodag. And this was from the Gazette in Stevens Point. John N. Pickert spent a day in the vicinity of Knowlton this week and succeeded in bagging a sand hill gouger. Now that sounded a lot like the side hill gouger. Right. A species of game never before captured in these parts. Later, on further investigation, the animal has been shown to be one of those ferocious beasts known as the hodag. There we go. So they found him down in Olton, too. It's funny. It's just these newspaper guys, I don't know if there was not enough going on. You figure with all the, all the people that disappeared at the lumber camps, mm-hmm. be, <laughs> there would have been plenty. I just uh, wonder if that news ever got out. Right. They were too busy making up creatures to entertain themselves. Yeah newspapers of that time if you go back and read them it's like john smith visited sally jane for lunch on sunday afternoon and jim brennan was in town from ohio visiting his in-laws so it was right. like very matter of fact happenings of the community and then to read sneak this stuff in there to sneak this stuff in there you just have to wonder even if you look back at some of the early ufo flaps from like the 1900s what did they call them the airships the airships in Chicago, Madison, and Milwaukee. Oh, yeah, 1897, there was a there was airships all over the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see that, and you're like, is there veracity to these? Are these legitimate reports? Or is somebody putting them in there as a lark to sell newspapers or to just entertain themselves a la Gene Shepard? Right, so now you would think, we read the newspaper, and you're like, okay, well, this has to go through. There's, I mean, there's journalism school. Like, there's there's be, fact checkers and there's legal ethics involved. And, yeah. They've editorial boards. Yeah. Clearance for, you know, to be able to use these quotes from people and everything. When you read the newspaper, you want to believe it. And so we have this standard today that was not the standard of the New North with the Snake Editor or the Arizona Republican mm-hmm. back 110 years ago. Oh, we got to take the Sea Serpent reports with a grain of salt. And I did not realize that until this very moment. <laughs> In this very <laughs> moment, I was like, hold on. Are you saying this stuff point? might not be real? Our friend Chad Lewis has a great book called Hidden Headlines of Wisconsin, where he features a lot of this stuff pre-1925 that appeared. It's a fun read if you want to read more audacious claims made in newspapers from Wisconsin from that era. Right. Don't believe everything you read. And then they say, don't believe anything you hear and half of what you see. Yeah, exactly. The people of Rhinelander, they're so enthusiastic about their hometown critter that they even dedicated a music festival to it, the Hodeg Country Festival. It's the longest running country music festival in the world. Wow. It started in 1978 to a crowd of about 500. It's since a attracted acts like Garth Brooks, Tim McGraw, Brooks and Dunn, Jake Owen, Toby Keith, 
This past year, I think the headliner was Hardy. The estimated attendance annually has now swelled to thirty to 50,000 people descending on Rhinelander for a weekend of, of music. Eugene Shepard would be proud. Yeah, so outside of the Northwoods, somebody referring to Hodag is probably referring to the Country Music Festival where we're talking about this mythical beast. Another fun event conceived from the minds of Carrie Bladern of the Pioneer Park Historical Complex and Ben Burnell of the Hodag Store is Hodag Heritage Festival. It's an event held annually at Pioneer Park to celebrate the Hodag, the actual beast. With the assistance of the Rhinelander Chamber of Commerce, the one-day event features speakers, vendors, food, beer, of course, green beer, live music, and even several reenactments of Gene Shepard's sideshow Hodag. Oh man, I would like to see that. That'd be fun. I got to attend this past year, and I was able to take in the show. The gentleman they had there, I can't remember his last name for the life of me. His name's Jerry. He was a two-time mayor of Rhinelander, and he embodied Gene Shepard as he showed off his hodag along with his assistant, Luke Kearney. Luke and Gene have come back for one final performance of the hodag, and it's a lot of fun. There's probably videos out there. I'll put a couple photographs that I took in the show notes. Yeah. So you can kind of take it in and get the sense of it, but it's a fun day of just celebrating the beast. Plenty of vendors, food, live music, the hodag king himself. Carrie Exotic was there playing. I saw a hodag, one of of my kids' favorite songs. Oh, that's great. It was a great time. We talked about our friend Ben Burnell and his hodag store. Well, an interesting suspect was linked to a shoplifting incident at the hodag store last year. Can you tell us more about that? That's right. So this is in April of uh, 2022. This is written by T. Krulos, and this is from AmericanGhostWalks.com. T. is our good friend from the Milwaukee Paracon, the Director. Director of the Milwaukee Paracon, and he also runs tours for American Ghost Walks in Milwaukee. And so this is the Hodag store robbed by Carmen Sandiego. Security cameras at the store caught something odd. A loudly dressed woman shoplifting at the Hodag store, stuffing her purse with a bottle of Hodag vodka. We could use that tonight. And other items. Retail theft is an unfortunate reality for mom and pop stores. But when a steal from the security camera footage was posted online, people pointed out that the shoplifter was dressed similarly to a legendary globe-trotting thief, Carmen Sandiego. Where in the world? Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, debuted as an edutainment video game in 1985, presented on floppy disk format for the Apple II computer. It's had many incarnations since, notably as a PBS game show from 1991 to 1995, and recently as an animated Netflix show. San Diego is depicted as having a red, wide-brimmed hat that obscures the upper half of her face and a long red jacket. She is, as the theme to the PBS show states, a sticky-fingered thief filcher from Berlin down to Belize, and that she'll stick him up down under and go pickpocket Perth. <laughs> This Carmen Sandiego wannabe was not as slippery as the fictional character. Local law enforcement quickly picked her up, possibly due to her garish attire, and were able to return the stolen merch to the Hodag store. That's some good work, gumshoes, as they say in the Carmen Sandiego show. Right, so that went viral a little bit last year when the image came out. And it really was this red, wide-brimmed hat. Yeah. She's really stuffing a bottle of vodka. I, I remember the first time I, I scrolled past it, I thought it was a joke. And then I realized it was an actual incident that had been stored. <laughs> it's the security camera. <laughs> Would Ben set that up? A little promotion? I doubt it because you don't want to encourage people <laughs> you know, to take stuff from the store. But it did let us know that Hodeg vodka exists. It does. And uh, Hodeg beer and Hodeg root beer. 
Rhinelander, they've embraced the Hodag. The high school mascot is, of course, the Hodag, which recently won Best High School Mascot in America, a scorebooklive.com voting poll. Nice. And it won in a landslide, so everybody loves the Hodag. Municipal buildings, the water tower, even police cruisers are emblazoned with the beast. The Rhinelander Area Chamber of Commerce has even sponsored a self-led Hodag scavenger hunt featuring 27 Hodag depictions, most of them statues. You can find the map online, or you can stop in at the Chamber of Commerce and grab a copy for yourself and go on your own Hodag hunt. Fun. Rhinelander got its name from Friedrich Rhinelander of New York. He was a railroad baron who operated the Milwaukee, the Lakeshore, and Western Railroads at the time. The naming rights were part of a bid by two early developers to get a spur of that railroad line to service the Northwoods town, and they named it Rhinelander. Ah, a little flattery there, like, yeah. what in town after you? Exactly. And it got the railroad there, so it uh, accomplished its goal, and it was something that Gene Shepard actually advocated for. But a name like Shepherdstown would have been a fitting name for the area due to his early involvement in Rhinelander's history. Now, regardless of the town name, Shepherd's name can still be found on the streets and parks throughout the city, and even Shepherd Lake, as I mentioned earlier. Mm. And the Hodag store, it's actually on the corner of Lincoln Street and Shepherd Street, fittingly, and the Hodag B&B, the Airbnb that Ben operates right behind the store, is on Shepherd Street. Eugene Simeon Shepherd died in 1923 at the age of 69. He was laid to rest in the city cemetery, but his spirit lives on through the Hodag. And if there's one place the Hodag is real, it's Rhinelander. Long live the Hodag. Long live the Hodag. I love it. And that concludes another episode of the Wisconsin Legends podcast. I want to say a special shout out to Carrie Bladern for helping me do some research here. Been at the Hodag store, can always regale me in a legend of the Hodag I've never heard before. And I pulled a lot of the resource material for this episode from a book called Long Live the Hodag, The Life and Legacy of Eugene Shepard by Kurt Kortenhoff. Thanks for joining us once again for another episode. This is Jeff Finnup with Badgerland Legends, along with Mike Huberty from American Ghost Walks. And you can find us online. You can find Jeff at BadgerlandLegends.com or Insta at at Badgerland Legends. Nice and easy. And you can find me at AmericanGhostWalks.com or Instagram, American Ghost Walks. The Wisconsin Legends Podcast is presented by American Ghost Walks, hosted by Mike Huberty and Jeff Finnup. Recorded at Sunspot Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. Edited by Jeff Finnup. Audio engineer, Mike Huberty. Music by Sunspot and various artists. Find out more about the show, including show notes, at wisconsinlegendspodcast.com. Follow the guys at American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends on Instagram and Facebook. We'll see you next time.